0: Hello everybody, I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon, and we're the Old Dogs.
1: If you've got about 20 minutes, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and
0: join us. In this episode, the Old Dogs ramble about that final event in our lives, the one where people celebrate our passage from it. We'll talk about modern ways of handling what used to be called funerals, we'll see how cleverly one company got their stolen van back, we'll investigate the mystery of the crazy raccoons, and we'll have a chat with Suzanne Savoy, a veteran New York actress whose name you may not know, but whose face you've most likely seen. Stay with us. So, Paul, what's on your
1: mind today? Well, it's a subject that may be a little (laughs) grisly, but it's definitely on my mind. My wife, Susan, the other day said to me, "Uh, look, you're not going to make me design your memorial service, are you? I want you to design it. And, uh, you know, I really hadn't been thinking much about death or (laughs) funerals. But it did plop me into that subject, and, you know, we have a a pot nugget about that today also, that Mm -hmm. um, the way we handle death has changed quite a bit in our society. They're talking more about memorial services versus a formal funeral.
0: That's true. Yeah. Um, I can't think of the last time I went to a traditional funeral. Can you? It's been a long time. You mean yeah. with a casket down in front, mm-hmm. and, yeah, a, and and and
1: uh, people uh, you hired to weep around the casket, <laughs> <laughs> the mourners. Oh, I'm sorry, that was The Godfather. I, uh, I yeah. got confused. And and so I think I think the trend is away from maybe the sadness of a traditional funeral into more of focusing on
0: uh, the life of a person. You know, celebrating their life. Uh, but I have to tell you that I. I wonder, where, where's the sadness? Where where do you take the time to mourn? And I think that's an important factor.
1: Yeah, it probably is. But, you know, that's also a very personal journey, too. It can take weeks, months, maybe even years for somebody to get past the death of a loved one. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure how a formal funeral fits into that picture exactly. Yeah,
0: yeah. It seems perhaps they feel that a formal funeral because of its formal nature, is therefore not personal. Uh, going back to the fact that sometimes the officiant mispronounces a person's name, they don't really have <laughs> a connection to this person the way their close friends do, and yet the close friends in a traditional si- uh, situation don't have a chance to if, talk about
1: it. What I've experienced, which is kind of interesting to me, is when people start a reminiscence and it's written and they've thought about it, mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of information about somebody you never knew, even though you may have had a close friendship.
0: Um, you know, so you go,
1: "Oh, I didn't know that." Uh,
0: so, is that why your wife wanted you to create your own memorial service because there are things about you that she doesn't know?
1: Yes, and there's so many things that. I've kept secrets from her. (laughs) Once I'm dead, I don't care.
0: (laughs) I have known you for over 30 years, Paul. Yes, you have. Are there things that you need to tell me about yourself that I should know? Not right now, but after I'm gone, I'll
1: probably share a lot of things. Well,
0: we do have some sort of fiduciary relationship here that uh, I'm
1: just saying. Okay, uh, you'll be in the will. Is that what you mean? (laughs) or the won't whatever it might be. And and I understand exactly my wife's sentiment when she says uh, you take a hand in designing how you want to be remembered. It should be your responsibility and also your fun maybe.
0: But so what was your reaction to her request? How did you feel about that?
1: Um I think my first impulse was what's the rush? <laughs> <laughs> The traditional somber funeral is rapidly being replaced by celebrations of the life of loved ones. This nugget
0: comes to us from the Washington Post for April 15, 2019. This change has given rise to a new occupation called a Celebration of Life Planner. What? Yep. They work with the family of the deceased to create a memorable send-off. Allison Bossert has a company called Final Bow Productions in Los Angeles, (laughs) of course— ...that does a brisk business planning, well, last impressions. One recent event involved a hot dog cart, gift bags for the mourners, and celebrity speakers. As Ms. Bossert explains it, we can't control how or when we die, but we can say how we want to be remembered. Now, many factors have contributed to this change... The high cost of a traditional
1: funeral, the popularity of cremation, and the difficulty of scheduling a timely funeral with the body present. Memorial services where the body is not present are easier to schedule and allow for the service to become more life-centered around the likes and dislikes of the person.
0: Funeral homes have had to adapt to these changes in order to survive. Welcome to Marketing 21st Century. They have hired event planners, remodeled facilities to include dance floors, Whoa, and lounge. Dance floors? I said dance floors, and lounge areas, and some have even added a liquor license. That's right. A liquor license. So as we boomers approach
1: our expiration date, it could be a service to our loved ones to think about how we would like to be remembered. Put your thoughts down on paper. Planning a memorial service can be overwhelming for mourners, and something planned in advance could make the time less difficult.
0: A stolen van was found in record time. The key wasn't GPS tracking, it was a free keg party. This item comes to us from the Houston Chronicle dated May 15, 2019.
1: The van was owned by a brewery in Charlotte, North Carolina, and they took a unique approach to locating the stolen vehicle. They offered a free keg party online to whoever found the van. The thieves were even included in the free offer. It took just 42 minutes for the missing van to turn up. Someone found it parked on a side street and posted the result on Instagram.
0: How come I didn't hear about this? I guess it demonstrates the power of social media, or maybe the power of a free keg party. We've all taken bad selfies. Oh, wait a minute. Speak for yourself.
1: Well, I've seen some of your selfies, (laughs) And if that's not bad enough, now we have to worry about taking safe selfies. Oh, boy. This item comes to us from the Washington Post for May 13, 2019.
0: Okay, believe it or not, over 250 people have died over the last decade while taking selfies. The problem is that people tend to concentrate on the view on their phones and miss hazards in their surroundings. To raise awareness about the problem, the National Park Service has published a guide to safe photos. Here's a few tips. Focus on your surroundings,
1: not your shot. As you're positioning for your shot, notice where your feet are located. Be aware of slipping, tripping, or falling hazards. Plant your feet firmly
0: before lining up the shot. Stay on the beaten path. Stay in places that visitors are allowed. Designated viewpoints may be crowded because they offer the best view. Be patient and wait your turn.
1: Oh, here's a good one. If you have a wild animal in your selfie, (laughs) you are too close. Stay at least 100 yards from wolves and bears, good advice, and 25 yards from other wildlife. Now, get this. Three people in Yellowstone Park were gored by bison while taking selfies in 2015, uh, with clarification here, the people were
0: taking the selfies, not the bison. <laughs> Finally, keep both hands on the steering wheel. Motor vehicle crashes are the most common cause of fatalities in national parks. Pull over and stop before you try to take a picture. And we hope all of you have
1: safe selfies
0: this year. Practice safe selfie. When locals in Milton, West Virginia, saw raccoons behaving weirdly, don't they always behave weirdly? They called police, thinking that the animals were rabbit. The police confirmed that the animals were staggering and disoriented, but they weren't diseased. This item is from the Washington Post, dated December seventh, 2018. The raccoons had apparently consumed
1: some crab apples that had fermented on the tree. They were drunk on crab apples. Of course. The animals were held in custody until they sobered up. (laughs) No
0: charges were filed and the animals were released into the wild. The raccoons join other animals who made headlines for public intoxication. Birds in Gilbert, Minnesota were flying into windows and acting confused after consuming fermented berries. And a whole range of animals, from dogs to ferrets, have accidentally consumed pot That was left lying around. (laughs) Ferrets and pot, not a good mix. But here's a caution if you witness strange animal behavior, don't assume it's an alcohol problem. It still could be rabid. Leave it to the professionals. Good advice there. Our old dogs interview is with Suzanne Savoy a veteran actress on two coasts, a familiar face in popular TV series, a person with a resilient spirit and a continually active mind. This will be part one of a two-part interview. Well, let's talk about your life, okay? (laughs) Starting from your move to New York and the experience that you've had as an actress in the city of New York.
2: Okay. Well, first off, you know, I moved from Houston, which was such a different market. You know, I, I thought I was going to take my my little uh, career and move it up to New York and just hit the ground running. And I really had no idea how different things were up here. And I mean, you would think that New York would be so far ahead of Houston, you know, in in many ways. But in actually, it was very behind. Yeah. Everybody yeah. was saying, "Well, we're not going to, yeah, we're not going to change for nothing. This is the way we do it." Uh, and of course, they did change, but um I just ran into some very um old-fashioned attitudes up here. And yet, on the other hand, in Film and TV, they were more specific about Film and TV acting here than we necessarily were down in Houston. Um procedurals had a certain kind of acting, and comedies had a certain kind of acting and Half hour comedies had different kind of acting than longer comedies, So I had to learn all those, you know, how, how to differentiate between uh, and among all those different styles. Um, so it was it was an education coming up here. Plus, I came up here in my 40s, which was uh, duh. <laughs> you know. Um, there was just a lot more competition. And my competition here was name actors. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I lost a job to Florence. Freaking Henderson or or somebody like that, you know? (laughs) Like, whatever, you know, I don't have a name like that. So it was it was tough.
1: So how long do you think it took you to get established?
2: Well, I'll tell you, to get back to where I was when I left Houston took me 15 years. Wow. Okay. But uh in the meantime, I was working, you know, I was I I had to start out actually working out of town and, and I did that consciously. Because uh, I remembered when I worked in Houston, you know, um, and, and you guys have run into this, I'm sure, that if it came down, if a role came down to you and some guy from the coast, very often the actor from the east or west coast got it, I think sometimes just by default. So I thought, all right, when I moved to to New York, I thought, well, I'm going to use that in a reverse way. Uh, I will go out to... New Jersey and Connecticut and um, Pennsylvania. I'd drive out there and uh, I got agents out in those states. And so in those states, I was the big New York actress, although I wasn't big in New York. You know? mm-hmm. And so, you know, unfortunately, I, I traded on that and uh, I got some footing. So
0: what would you say were the highlights of the uh, work that you've performed?
2: Well, you know, it, it came about gradually. Um, you know, I'd, I'd get uh, bigger and bigger roles in first in smaller projects and then bigger projects. And I think my first big breakthrough came when I finally got a good theatrical agent, which, you know, is film and TV, not just theater. And, um, and, and I got to tell you, I went through so many <laughs> weird agents. One of them wound up sleeping on my couch for a few weeks because he was homeless you know isn't that
0: sort of couch casting in reverse <laughs> yeah.
2: so um I finally got in with a good agent and they love me and I love them and my first big break was Boardwalk Empire um, I got a, a role that we shot for a week I was Mrs. Pendergast and um that was Great! It was a lot of fun, and then the casting director Julie Schubert, who who cast me in that, gained confidence in me and started calling me in for uh, my my next big role was um, in Steven Soderbergh's TV series The Nick, and I loved working with Steven Soderbergh. It was just that was one of the high points of my career. Wow! He's because he's just a he's a genius in regular guy disguise, you know. He's lovely to work with. Very. normal and regular, just wants to get the shot and isn't really into all the other shenanigans. Um, And so then it just sort of moved on from there. Then I got cast in House of Cards and had a a recurring role in that and Better Call Saul, which even though it's a smaller role, I feel like that's one of the biggest feathers in my cap just because I love Better Call Saul. I think it's such a great show. Um, and recently, I did an episode of NCIS where I got to be the villain and get blown away. So that was fun.
0: Oh, that's so against character.
2: <laughs> you think you think it is? You don't know, <laughs>
1: but- Suzanne. I I would say you are the definition of a working actress. Right. And and uh, people listening probably think, oh, I see. Well, she answers her phone, goes to work, comes home, and eats bonbons. Mm-hmm. What what is a day like for a working actress?
2: Well, you know, I always say that work being self-employed is you're working for the worst boss in the world because there's no days off. And um, even if you're not auditioning, you're constantly doing something to get yourself out there. I'm either working on my website or, well, I don't have a website anymore, but now, now we do IMDB and we do Actors Access and Casting networks and all of those things. And really, it's a lot of work to keep those up, keep yourself out there, uh, do press releases. Um, you know, I just I, I just keep up with my friends and, uh, you know, it's, it's just all part of the life, the creative life. I'm doing research a lot of the time on roles, future roles, current roles. Um, yeah. So it's just the, the whole day is filled with stuff. Got it. Uh, what are some of the weirdest jobs you did? Oh God! Well, you know this this gets dark. <laughs> uh, a couple of years ago, I had my year of the Me Too, and at what you know, at my age, people aren't trying to diddle me. You know, literally, but there's if somebody's on a power trip, um, they're they're going to get you in some way or other. Uh, because I worked on House of Cards, I had to deal with a very difficult personality there, and I also was on the last Harvey Weinstein movie that he produced, and um, and I got done out of a lot of money because those guys, they they just you know they were good at uh, getting around actors and just taking and not giving. So uh, so I those were strange, in that I had to work with some very. Difficult, weird, warped personalities, and you go home at the end of the day just kind of going, ah, oh, I just need a shower. <laughs> you know, just, you just go home feeling dirty and used. So those were weird, in you know, in that way. Um, and you know, there have been those kinds of jobs throughout my career where I've had to keep my horse sense about me and keep the job. You, you know, you don't want to lose the job, but you still have to keep your integrity and not fall into the traps that are being set for you. Oh, mm-hmm. let me tell you about the latest weird job I did. I played a cannibal grandma. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you were looking for, Paul? Uh, yes, that yes, I was. <laughs> That's what you're fishing for. Yeah, it's a movie that'll be coming out, I think, next year. It's called Keeping Company. And I originally was not going to do it, but my daughter talked me into it. Mom, you've got to do this. You're a cannibal grandma. Come on.
0: (laughs) Susie, given your experience with these various producers and uh, stars and so on, uh, and your decision to uh, take better control over your own life and future, what did you decide to do?
2: So I chose to, again, take things into my own hands. I thought, I need a project that I have control over that I feel is putting something good out into the world where I can improve as an actor. So I created a solo show about a woman that I've known of for many years, but I didn't realize how important she was and how amazing she was. Her name was Christine de Pizan. And um, I created a, an hour and a half show out of her, almost entirely her words about her life, about the world she lived in, about the kings of France, And all these characters in history that we know about today through Shakespeare's works and through historical documents, she knew these guys and was friends with them. And let's make sure our listeners know what the name of that show is. It's Je Christine, and that means I Christine, and it's spelled J-E, Christine, just like the name Christine.
1: Uh, Tell us a little bit about this person, Uh, not Uh, a very well-known figure.
2: She lived around the year 1400 in France, and um, became a widow at the age of 25, had three small children to support. And you can imagine back then, what was she going to do? Uh, the crown took away her husband's property because widows did not inherit. And there she was with nothing and, and no way to support her children. So she says, I know what I'll do. I'll, uh, I'll write these little poems and I'll sell them to courtiers as kind of like the medieval version of Hallmark cards. You know, here, give this to your sweetie. And, <laughs> and, and so these courtiers started asking for longer and longer works and she created longer works and they became book length uh, with beautiful illustrations, which were so gorgeous that they're still around today. She wrote political treatises. She became an advisor to the queen of France and to the sons and heirs of the king of France. Um, and during a time of terrible turmoil, it was the Hundred Years' War, the, the plague, uh, she wrote the only existing contemporary work about Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc was her contemporary. She wrote in defense of women at a time when women had some rights, but you know, not, not nearly what we have today. Uh, and she fought fiercely for the fair representation of women in literature because women were always represented as temptresses and weak-willed and weak-spirited and... Um, very materialistic. And she wrote to set the record straight. She wrote books, which included all the great women of the world. And these were the pillars that she gave women to hang on to and prop themselves up with.
0: What has been the, the audience reaction? What has been the, the university's reaction to oh boy, this it's, story?
2: It's fabulous. I, I love doing the show in every place. And so to bring it back, to life is a thrill. People are just, I see these beaming faces, these scholars just beaming in the audience as though they're, you know, I'm pouring candy into their ears.
0: In our next episode, we'll continue our conversation with Suzanne Savoy, especially how she survived a very serious illness, how she overcame enormous odds to do so, and how she managed to use this experience to inspire the rest of her life.
1: Well, it looks like we made it through another episode.
0: If you enjoyed it, let us know. Or if you know somebody who'd be fun to interview, tell us about them.
1: You can reach us at our website, olddogspodcast.com.
0: And hey, keep on howling at the moon.